We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, comrades, compañeros, how you doing? We're back for another edition of the Fifth Column Podcast, the dulcet tones of your co-host, Michael Moynihan, because Camille is uh, started his new thing I think he's doing today, which means that we'll never see him again. Nope. So um, for all of you who write in and say, it's a great show Get rid of that guy. Mm -hmm. um, you usually use some more colorful language, shall we say? <laughs> um, <laughs> you Too soon. Um, but uh, but we've achieved that, so he's gone. Uh, no, that's not true. Can I just that's read from true. the? I know we're not supposed to he's read from gone. the text string, but oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, Matt Welch, by the way. Generally you know speaking, him. yeah, you know, editor uh, at large. See, uh, see <laughs> from Treason Magazine or Re Re CNN. CNN. Um, <laughs> see if you can, see if you can, uh, uh, just like out you out there in listener land. Uh, you can you can uh, weigh in on the comments. That is, if you're a paying subscriber and therefore have commenting privileges. Um, this is what uh, Camille texts up. I was on my way back. He means to his whatever hotel room. His uh, knows, at this point, his infinity pool. Yeah. Uh, but got jammed up. And how would you describe that emoji there, uh, Moynihan? Like the little sad emoji face with the, either the sweat or the tear. Three of those. Yeah, I think yeah. that's. Uh, I think. Yeah, I don't know what. That it's is. not like it's not how adults talk. No, no, it's not an adult thing. When you do when you do the three emojis, you know that that it's like when you're speaking and your voice goes up. You're like, no, you look great. It's like kind of a lie. <laughs> There's mm -hmm. like a, the emojis are in there, and it's like, or when you finish a you... sentence on a question mark. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, says may <laughs> not be back to my hotel for another thirty to forty-five mins, and that's me being optimistic. All right, so that's that's Camille that's talking like a good twenty minutes ago. I say maybe um, yeah. before, uh, but I was on my way back, but got jammed up. You're yeah. in a car. What yeah, does get what... jammed up mean? In he's probably situation. taking a call by the side of the road, or he's doing a, he's on the uh, G. Gordon Liddy show or something. Well, he's, <laughs> he's in San Francisco he now, so maybe he's like <laughs> dropping a load by the side of the road. No, maybe he's surrounded by a zombie <laughs> apocalypse of fentanyl addicts who just are pushing on his car and about to tip it over. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? I, but, I, but I, you know, look, it doesn't matter. No. Matt, it does not matter. Because despite my hideous and horrible day, I am here. And that I think is what's most important to the listeners. You're, you're, you know, you're okay too. They don't mind you. But um, the fact that I'm here is going to make everybody very happy. But I need to tell you a little bit about today. But there's only so much I can tell you. Why? Because I had jury duty, oh. and uh, and you know I do take it seriously. I do take my, <laughs> I do take my duties as a citizen uh, seriously. I did mention the fifth column in the court today to the judge. Um, that is true. That's and, great. Uh, what what well, did she's you say? like, well, because you know, and I can only wow, say, I, what's up, sexist? Um, <laughs> I said, well, I do a podcast with a raging misogynist, and she was like, tell me more. Yeah. Um, uh, no, but you know, you're not allowed to talk about what's happening because I did get picked, of course. Um, and I'll tell you how I got picked in a second, but um, I can't tell anything about that because I don't want her to get mad at me because she was very nice. Um, despite you, being a little mean to me at first. Are you trying um, to make a play? Just let's, let's. No, no, no. She was, she was like really mad at me when I, I was coming through the metal detector and this woman's like yelling at me and I was like, holy shit, that's the judge. Um, <laughs> Cause you can't bring phones in and I have diabetes and all my stuff is on my phone. Like my, and I was like, can I just turn all the, 
the stuff off and, you know, the bells and whistles. And just so I, and she was like, no. And she's like, how often do you like every minute? And I'm like, well, not every minute, but you know, she's like, well, then you can go out and come back in, go out and come back in. And I was like, I can't during the trial. That's not, I mean, if I get picked. So I go in and you know, there's a six person jury, not a felony. So it's a six person jury. And, um, there's like 30 odd, 34 of us or something like that. It's a pretty big pool. And I'm like, I, I got this, I'm getting out of this. Um, but there's a guy, what were your, like, uh, I, we talked previously on the, uh, on the last uh, time we got together that you were going to just go full racist as Uh, a, as a, yeah. I was wearing a t-shirt that said, I hate Mexicans. I just got it. So it was brand new. So I think they suspected that I don't yeah. really hate Mexicans. Because I don't. Had the I don't, obviously. Yeah. The yeah, it was like, yeah. She saw me taking it out of the Amazon bag. Um, <laughs> so I get in there and I'm like, I got this one. Um, because, you know, you put down on the, like, on the questionnaire, you're like, I'm a journalist. They don't want that. You know, I just don't think they don't want that. That's what I thought. But, um, but so they picked the people. And I don't get picked. Pretty psyched. But I'm just sitting there in the gallery with everybody, you know, and the, the, ju- the judge asked the questions of the people pulled up there. And then the, uh, the prosecutor and the defense uh, asked the questions. And then um, I, um, I come back, you know, because you, you have to come back. And they pick some people. And now they're like, and now for the alternates. And I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake, the alternates. <laughs> Forgot about the alternates. And so they can name a bunch of other names, like another 10 people. And I go up and they start questioning me. And um, uh, I acquitted myself very well. Uh, got, some, got some laughs. I was, uh, I was happy. I got some, I got some laughs. And that's the most important thing. <laughs> it was any, the most important thing. Any uh, punchlines worth uh, sharing to the class? Um, well, we were talking about uh, the... Um, about like my job and I'm like, you know, I, 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 I work at home and, and she's like, you know, and I made something, uh, I made some crack about, I really could use this $40 a day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Cause it's literally $40 a day yeah. and you know, no food, uh, no, yeah. they don't compensate for uh, travel. Uh, and it's like literally $40 a day. It's like, it's the, it's an unbelievable wage. Um, so, so yeah, this, uh, this happens. And after all, they, they pick me as a fucking alternate. And then when they, br- they bring us out, the judge says to one woman, she's like, you know what? You're, you're have a family thing that you mentioned. Uh, you're free to go. Uh, Moynihan, you're, you're, you're up in the, because the good thing about being an alternate is nobody drops out. You don't have to deliberate. You can just go home. Right. You don't have to, cause, cause you don't, you don't need it. You're just there as a, you know, but you're there for the duration of the trial, the duration of the trial. Yes. But you can go home during the deliberations, which sometimes can take a long time. So but at like, least you so get out of it. I, I've got a, a couple of follow-up questions here. First of sure. all, what, what, is, what the, what the living heck is a six jury juror trial? Uh, what, what is that? This, I, mean, I ain't heard uh, of that. This man was accused of uh, being complicit in the Rwandan genocide. <laughs> Oh, okay. And they so found they, him an East egg. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so they were like, they just picked the best. Um, but um, it is a jury trial out there is quite funny, actually, because you go into the parking lot and I'm like, wow, it's every juror in a Porsche. Uh, and, and there was like literally three, three, three Porsches. I was like, of like active, active, Which, I got picked. Uh, did people. you roll up in one of your handmade uh, uh, no, fake no, no, sports no, no, cars? No, I, I did not. It you took the bus? Yeah, I took the bus. I took, I took the, uh, I, you know, I put dirt all over my face. I didn't want to look good. 
Yeah. Um, I didn't want to look like I could re- render a quality judgment. So other so, than that, I'm not allowed to say anything and I want to, I abide by that. You didn't dress like you would for Megyn Kelly, for example. I dressed, I dressed reasonably well. Um, yeah. that was not the case across the board, by the way. <laughs> oh like, no. I was like, the great thing about it is the courtroom is possibly the coldest place on earth. It is, it is like a Finnish winter and, um, and everyone's like wearing, uh, like board shorts and like, uh, in flip-flops and uh, I came prepared. I just, it's going to be like a movie theater, be, be dressed like you're going to see Oppenheimer. So now, um, so yeah, Bar- I have to go back tomorrow. So go back like, tomorrow morning, screwed up all my follow-up. weekend plans. Other follow-up question is, are you expected to watch the whole trial but just not be part of the deliberations. Oh no, no! I got called into the main to the main show because someone dropped. After she picked, she said to this one woman, "You know, you you get to leave because of the story you told." Oh, you're about. an alternate, and you got yeah, slotted I got, in. I got slotted. That's in. it. Oh yeah, my I god! In. So I I made a joke uh, uh, when I, before I went in. We're in the jury room, and I'm like, "This is it's horrible getting picked, and then I don't get to deliberate." I want to tell you guys, you know, what I think. And uh, then I got the call to the big show. I was uh, languishing in AAA, and they were like, you know what, I think you're ready for the bigs. So they pulled me out. And uh, that's where I was today, and that's where I shall be tomorrow. And um, after this is uh, adjudicated with my uh, help as a citizen of the United States and someone who Mm -hmm. cares about their civic duty, um, I will uh, then uh, maybe tell a little bit more about the experience because it's pretty funny. The whole thing is like, it's, it's, it's amazing. I, I know there's a show called Jury Duty that everyone loves. Yeah, someone um, was just talking about that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and uh, I imagine, I understand, I, I understand now uh, how a comedy writer would be like, hey, let's do a story, let's do a show about Jury so, Duty. Because it uh, is really insane. So. It was about 10 years ago, I think, even less, I forget. I, 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 it's my penultimate time at uh, responding to my jury summons. I wrote up a piece about it. I think there was like two or three different fire alarms and at least two fires that happened. It was like downtown Brooklyn on the absolutely horrid like um, uh, county court uh, house. Um, yeah. It, it, by the end, I was an anarchist. Like I've always thought anarchists are crazy and yeah. just stop it enough already. And like by the end, I was like, sign me up and also I'll be the violent one too. Like I'll just throw bombs. It was such a, a waste of human experience. I could not begin to believe it the inefficiency of it and actually greg beato wrote a great piece for reason like 15 years ago back when he was still a columnist he's a great columnist um talking about there's actually sort of plausible ways uh that have been proposed to make jury duty not stupidly insanely inefficient like you just walk into this and think if you had to just like draw up a way to waste human effort more including the effort by the judge the judge has to sit there and like ask everyone the same questions and hold up a paddle and do this it was a whole day i mean it was the you know i most of the day was was the process of selecting the jury and there's a guy that was there who's a lawyer and he said um it's much more efficient than it was in the past he said you know there was points in when and when you were selecting a jury uh, that it would take days um, like high profile trials that would take days and, um, you know, ask you these very, very detailed questions. This, um, um, I think that, cause I'm not talking about the trial, I can say this, uh, a lot of questions about what you watch on Netflix. Seriously. Oh, everybody, really? Everybody got that question. I, um, so, so that I was, was bounced. 
I was bounced 10 years ago uh, uh, through cross-examination because it was clearly a slip and fall case. And uh, and the the judge, the lawyer, one of the lawyers um, like was looking at me funny like, I, do I recognize you? I mm-hmm. do you go on TV? So you can imagine just like the the horridness of that conversation. Um, and then, <laughs> yeah, well, no one recognized me. <laughs> they were like, "Do you do uh, what kind of journalism?" I'm like, uh, "TV." And I was, uh, I was like, "Yeah, it was TV." And now I'm, you know, writing. And they were like, "Oh, interesting." I'm like, huh. now you, you, yeah." I was like, "There's a lot of channels these days. A lot of streaming. So you probably, don't, you probably haven't seen it." Uh, <laughs> it's on Hulu. But the last time, uh, and I forget if I mentioned this, um, in February I was uh, called in and I wanted to go, but it yeah. clashed with previous travel because it was a federal case, which is fancier court building, first of all. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also they were uh, doing a murder trial on a fentanyl o- overdose case oh. on the dealer. Right. Oh. I, I don't, I forget if I'm supposed to say that, but I don't care anymore. Um, no, it's fine. It's fine. You didn't, you and uh, and it was fascinating. It was, uh, clearly, it was like a test case too. Um, and uh, you can do some it, jury nullification. I in the whole thing was like you know whatever you do, don't talk to the defendants or the lawyer while we're you know like at a lunch break or any kind of yeah. break. And I would go out in the building, kind of a nice building on a little balcony, and immediately the two defendants and the lawyer like are right next to me near a balcony. It was like God, do I want to ask them some questions? Yeah, um, yeah. like you know why yeah. why did you? Do, not plea, right? Because what you do in a federal case is that they throw every charge at you until you're going to die. Your kids and your kids' kids are going to die in prison. And so you plea out to 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, it's, it's like 90, it's 99. How a motherfucker going to do triple life where you die and you come back and you got to go to penitentiary? If anyone knows what that's from, uh, that's a reference. Everyone, yeah, that's a, a reference. You get a free something or other. But I could uh, not. I could not go just because if I bought a ticket to California. But um, that'd be really fun. Wait, you can say uh, that. You can tell them like I, I. I got travel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should have tried that one out. Um, well, no. You know what it is actually, and then we can move on to actually real subjects, um, which aren't not really, really probably real subjects anyway. Like Tracy Chapman. Um, <laughs> the um, the thing that the thing that 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 got me, and this is going to sound so self serving and so phony but it is actually true is that I'm too, I'm too honest because there was a, there were guys that were like, there was one guy in front of me. He was like plotting on how to get out of it. He was a real, I didn't like this, this guy at all, but he, he goes out and, uh, and like he finds like the, the obvious leading question, right? Which is, um, is anyone here? Like, you know, is your head in it? And it was literally a question like that. And he was like, you know, I'm, I'm just really distracted. Oh, no. Um, is your uh, head in it? We didn't get uh, that question. Yeah, yeah, in no, it was like it was like a baseball. <laughs> it was like a little league game. It was like get your head in the game. And and he was like, I'm straight out to uh, this uh, city that I'm going to move to. It's very it's stressing me out. And, and the guy next to me was like, Jesus, this guy's trying everything. <laughs> and he got he got he got, uh, oh. he got he didn't get picked. So he said his head wasn't in it. And and the other one and another one was a hilarious one where he's like. You know, I can't, I can't be impartial about, uh, about, uh, this person. I think that if they brought him in, he must've done something. <laughs> no. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. That worked too. That's um, the thing. Like, like a lot of the questions for me were, were like, um, would you feel comfortable enforcing, uh, a law that, that you, you disagree f- with, that you disagree with? Yeah, and it's like, yeah. 
Yeah, I'm 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 totally no, I'm comfortable with that because I understand that's my job. But also, like, I want to be the guy who goes on there and says that loss fucked, not yeah. guilty. Um, and okay, uh, you know, I said, let me say one other thing because I know because yeah. you know you're not supposed to talk about the case, isn't about the case. So I, sure, no, to the, not to the, to about the judge the case, who's clearly judge, a huge lady. fifth 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 column fan at this point. She, she will be soon. Um, she'll be soon. Um, I will say this that uh, at the beginning they they play two videos and one is. Um, uh, a guy who's an actor, uh, I think from like Law and Order or something. And yeah. he's like, this is what a jury does. America. And it's just whole fucking <laughs> stupid thing. And then they're like, they're like, and this is the next video. By the way, like the video kept on stuttering and the woman's like, oh, the internet connection here is horrible. I'm like, you guys haven't figured out how to just download it to the computer? Like why, like, why is it online? It's like, seriously, this is not going well. And the second one was about implicit bias. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah, it was implicit bias. And a they had, video about implicit yes, bias before yes. we do jury selection. Yes, it was like you you have to get rid of your implicit bias. But there was this group, and I can't remember what they're called. They're like the bias squad or something. But they were like a nonprofit. Forms. Yeah, 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 nonprofit in New York or something. And they were like, "This is what uh, uh, you know, implicit bias is." And the woman went on in this thing that literally made no sense, and everyone was like shaking their head, like, "Oh, I see." And it was like, this was, now tell me what you think. This is your bias. This is implicit bias. You don't realize that you have it. It's like, you know, when you have a cup of coffee, everyone loves a cup of coffee. And it shows mm-hmm. like all this stock footage of like people drinking coffee. And then she's like, you know, when you go uh, to get your coffee in the morning, you didn't put it in your shoe. You put it in a cup. And I, and I was like, wait, where is this going? And she's like, you know, that is implicit bias. I'm like, no, it's not. I'm like, what? what? I swear on my life. I'm not joking. The, and, and I was like, no, no, that's knowledge. That is something that you realize from trial and error from generations that a cop is more efficient than a shoe. That's not bias. And so it was all the examples of implicit bias weren't bias. It was really, really strange. Um, but they, they show you this video. It's basically like saying, don't be racist. But, but, um, uh, but uh, it didn't really make the point in a, in a sensible way, shall we say. I did. There was, a, lot of, there was a, a couple of images that had the word equity in, it, equity in it too. So go ahead. Sorry about it. I did an implicit bias the other day. I need to confess. So um, it was my... Uh, now 15 year old's birthday and we asked her what, what she wanted for her birthday dinner and because we're fancy in this household uh we we're able to fulfill even the most elaborate request and so she said i would really love a burrito from chipotle i'm like oh, for you baby i'll do anything um so i went to our local chipotle uh in brooklyn and um I walked in and the just right away was not having a great vibe with the guy who was taking my order. He looked like he didn't like me. I probably dressed like I yeah, usually yeah. do. So I, I get that I'm dislikable um, uh, to some degree. Um, uh, a, a fella who has a, a melatonin, melanin uh, a force field, as, uh, as Camille would say, um, and was just we weren't having a great rapport and like, you know, handling a quesadilla in a burrito situation. And um, at some point I'm, I'm getting like, like nervous. It's like it's like the, the hostility is, is coming at me and I'm trying to be affable. Um, and uh, he asks me and there was a feeling of like, I think. I don't know. I was I was paranoid in a way that I almost never am in any transaction with another human being. I had the feeling that he didn't um, like where I was coming from. And <laughs> he didn't like you as a white. 
Is that or as a white? No, he, yeah. he thought that I didn't like him as a white or something. And yeah. so, um, it, it, Chipotle, which I don't go to very often, there's two types of rice. Um, one is brown rice and one, one is white rice. This and, is, by uh, the way, why this is the free episode. Yeah, it's free. <laughs> so, yeah. It's free. D- don't complain when we're talking uh, about the rices. <laughs> Not the races, but the rices. He said, uh, it was so, and I'm fulfilling an order for a kid and he's like, uh, and I'm flustered by now. I'm as flustered as I am right now talking about it. The sweat is reappearing, even though it's 5 trillion degrees here in, in New York right now. Um, uh, and, and I was like, he's like, what kind of ri- rice do you want on this? I'm like, uh, the n- normal kind. And he's like, we have two types of rice here. Mm-hmm. Just staring at me. I e- equated normal with white and he oh, <laughs> shot laser wow. beams through his eyes wow. at me. And he was right. He was right. My implicit bias was that normal that was white. And I still feel guilty about it right so now. So that is that is the equivalent of uh, um, <laughs> back in the day when you would get a crayon and it was flesh. And it was, uh, it was oh just, yeah, it was just white. It was white. Yeah, I know was that was. Thought, I thought it was more of like a, an off pink. It, it was like an off pink. It was like yeah. So anyway, I, I feel like our filibustering is going pretty well. This here, is, yeah, Camille this is uh, this is well. There's a couple of stories we want to talk about because not a lot going on in the news these days. I mean, there's, you can always find something, but as far as far as in America, there's NATO stuff which is pretty interesting. Um, because you guys like to, to send emails. I mean, I think most people agree with us on the broad strokes of when we talk about NATO, Ukraine, et cetera. But it's the ones who don't that uh, usually send the emails. So we can talk about that at one point. But, uh, but you know, for the most part, it's a summer news cycle. And uh, there's one story I want to talk about. We want to wait till Camille gets here. And it has to do with um, the uh, nine, early 90s songstress Tracy Chapman, So prepare yourself for that in one of the worst articles that I've read um, in a long time. But let's also talk about um, something that will also make listeners say, oh, God, we're going to talk about Czechoslovakia now. And we're going to talk about uh, Milan Kundera or Kundera, depending on how you pronounce it. We'll we'll just say Kundera for this for this uh, purpose. The author of the classic book, The Unbearable Lightness of Being which um, uh, I really enjoyed, and the Book of Laughter and Forgetting, which I enjoyed less, but I still enjoyed. And he was a dissident Czech author who um, ended up leaving um, and then being domiciled in France, I believe. But uh, there ha- there was some controversy in the past couple of years of people who accused him of earlier in his life uh, collaborating with um, the secret police. So, But he died, and uh, Matt has a few things to say about him. And uh, I am going to start him off by saying when, when he texted uh, and said, maybe we could talk about this, that I was like, wait, we're going to talk about Milan Kundera. Why? And then I was like, oh, my God, he died, didn't he? So I, of course, <laughs> went to the New York Times. And there is a genre of New York Times obituary that is only a, a recent phenomenon, uh, which is to get very political about a writer's writing. And this is, I, I want to read this little section. It's a short section about Milan Kundera, who died and was a, was a uh, real giant of, uh, of literature in the 20th century. And this is what you get. Two paragraphs of this. Mr. Kundera could be easily pitiless in his use of female characters, so much so that the British feminist Joan Smith, who, in her book, Misogyny is What?, declared that, quote, hostility is the common factor in all Kundera's writing about women. Um, like quoting in review from an academic feminist about a popular author is very odd. Then the next sentence 
Next paragraph is, other critics reckon that exposing men's horrible behavior was at least part of his intent, at least part of his intent. Still, even the still, comma, that is my favorite. This is a trick of writing, ladies and gentlemen. When you say still, comma, it means that I'm trying to negate the previous sentence. Still, even the stronger women in Mr. Kundera's books tended to be objectified and the less fortunate were sometimes, and then my screenshot is cut off. You get the point. Um, that even the tr- strong women in his books tended to be objectified. <coughs> looking at literature, particularly when someone just died, looking at literature and looking at the characters as manifestations of the thoughts of the writer is one of the cheapest things. Now you're saying, well, they're clearly the creation of the thoughts of the letter. But there is an assumption often when you see a character that you don't like in a book to presume that that character is the kind of marionette of the author. And that's always a hard thing to say, right? That if there's a racist character, then, well, you know, it's, uh, it's probably the author being racist. He says these horrible things. This happened to Saul Bellow all the time when, uh, particularly in a book called Mr. Sandler's Planet, there's a couple of like things about black characters and we assume that this is um, the writer's unvarnished personal opinion. That might be the case. But I really resent the fact that in um, an obituary of a great uh, writer, and look, you don't have to think he's a great writer, but I think he was a, he was a, a pretty great writer. And widely considered to be so. And like widely considered like to be so. top five post-war, top, yes. uh, you know, latter half of the 20th century yes. novelist. He's and, on the list. Yes. And even uh, a movie of unbearable lightness of being with Juliette Binoche and Daniel Day-Lewis, which is a ben, huge kind Lee of Nolan. Let's not forget uh, Lee Nolan. Yeah, that's right. She's, she's in it too. Um, she's wearing a little bowler hat. And that is, um, you know, so he's, he's an influential person. And to, to, like, to go on a hunt for a, you know, random British feminist in a book that she wrote, she has a passage that she doesn't believe that he writes well-rounded female characters. To think that that's worthy, I mean, it's worthy of conversation, of course. As a critic, you can write that for sure. But when you're being selective about what to put in an obituary, that just struck me as very reflective of how the Times treats uh, most everything. Because what, And then I'm going to hand this over to Matt, so, uh, just to say, if you believe that the culture war is only in the kind of precincts of the right, um, and that's often very true. And you say, well, it's Ron DeSantis is the doing, it's the Dinesh D'Souza's of the world. It's the, um, you know, whoever's out there, Tim Pool or whoever these people are, uh, that they're talking. Yeah, there's a lot of that, but there's a lot of it on the other side too, but you just tend not to notice it because it's not as explicit. It's like, oh, it's just, there's a critic in the obituary about Milan Kundera's right. That's that. That's a, throwing a little bit of modern culture war into an obituary. So anyway, uh, Matt, what do you think of of uh, of Milan? So on that narrow point, it's kind of interesting, I think, because uh, a couple of things are true. One is that he was obsessed with sex, the portrayal of sex, sure. the window that sex gave to humanity. It's actually what turns me uh, off uh, to him to a degree on his writing, because I, for me, it was always too much. Now I'm approaching my uh, uh, kind of like more forgiving middle age, which I will use to all, uh, analyze other parts of his career, too, which when I was younger, I was a lot more harsh towards. Um, uh, I can, you know, I can say that maybe uh 
his theory that sex is the ultimate window into the human soul and, and personality, maybe one of the reasons why I reject that is because I'm afraid that it might be true uh, <laughs> or whatever. Like I, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a thing to think about. And it's also, I mean, he used it in, in um, I think it's also wrong, but yeah, but yeah. In Unbearable Lightness, being his most famous novel, the only one that he allowed to be made into a movie, um, a one in which, like, you know, it came out in 1988. The book is in 84. It was written in 82. Um, the, it came uh, out in the West. It came out in in the Czech Republic in, what, 96 or something? Six, in, maybe, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah His, like his books And as the not, Times pointed out, it, sold, it only sold 10,000 copies at the time. His books, uh, he has been, and I'm writing a piece for reason that'll be published tomorrow about his very contentious uh, basically, you know, uh, half a century feud with Václav Havel, um, yes. who, who was uh, his former student or like he was his mentor. I don't think he was officially a student, uh, but he he picked him out, you know, and said that that person is someone to watch. Let's let's check him out. Um, so uh, sex is absolutely part. And also, you know, it's it's very it's a very 60s conception. Hi, Camille. Um, you're going to have to listen to a lot about Czech stuff. Um, uh <laughs> A 60s conception, which is consistent all throughout kind of the new left 60s, there is like a huge element of just like, you know, the real liberation is me being able to fuck all the women. Um, and the character Tomas uh, in uh, I got Unbearable exactly the right time. Yes, right. yes yeah. you did. It, it, uh, it, it, it's very common in the 60s and in Camille's modern philosophy. <laughs> uh, that is not true. That is not true. There's only and, one for me. It doesn't even work with other women, which is amazing. Not that I've tried, yeah, but yeah. I know that if I did try, that it wouldn't work with other women. 40% of Camille's comments on the fifth column are actually directed <laughs> towards his wife, Tracy, saying like, baby, 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 baby. I'll never do that. Yeah, yeah. I don't have the capacity to do yeah, it. Yeah, it I'm sorry. Presumes that she listens to She doesn't. So the Tomas <laughs> character, the protagonist of that, and if, he's Daniel Day-Lewis in the movie. And like, if you're 19 when you're watching this movie, as I was, and you have super rakish Daniel Day-Lewis wearing cool, like, cosmopolitan 60s clothes, and then saying to Juliet Binoche and Lena Olin, Take off your clothes. Um, it has an impression on you. Uh, I'm not going to lie about that. Um, but also, uh, people forget two things. One is that um, he was, um, that was not a, even though he was an autobiographical-ish character, um, which Kundera makes clear in the novel, um, uh, he was also critiquing that and saying that uh, that he was using this as his own kind of escape. Um, he was he was conflicted. He, uh, Kundera himself was expressing conflicted emotions and was even making a metaphor about um, him using his sort of sexual power in the same way that communists use their power over individual citizens. So it's it's a it's way more complicated than all that. And this is not a small issue. Uh, and Moynihan, you might be too young to remember this. You might not be. But certainly I can say um, the uh, the standard college co-ed in the late 1980s would have absolutely at least two, if not three, of the following books on their bookshelves. Definitely The un uh, Unbearable Lightness of Being, which sold 400,000 copies in America. A novel by yeah. a Czech yeah. That was like, in some cases, translated from the French. Um, uh, and they would have that. 
Uh, they would have uh, 100 Years of Solitude and or Love and Time of Cholera by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. <laughs> and they would have uh, the Mambo Kings play Songs of Love. Like, it didn't turn off the lady readers is what I'm saying. Like, I know plenty of people who just read the hell out of that. It was sort of, it portrayed this kind of alluring world, very cosmopolitan, but also world-weary. And and more importantly for the listeners of this podcast, um, he did more um, to popularize the plight of Czechs and Slovaks who'd been subjugated by the Soviet Union's, the Warsaw Pact's invasion of Czechoslovakia in 68. Uh, he did more to, to, to let people of my generation, Michael's generation too, know about that than anyone. And it's not close. It is absolutely not close. Like there's a whole generation of people who watched that movie or read that book and said, what? That happened in living memory? That's terrible because in 1968, there's a lot of other stuff going on. A lot of assassinations in America. It's a revolutionary year the world over. But this was truly one of the world worst things that had happened in the world because in the five years before that, there had been this incredible flowering of culture and liberalization of what had been totalitarianism in Prague called the Prague Spring, which he was very much part of, as was Václav Havel. And they pushed the envelope and, and had incredible books, movies, literature, poetry, drama. His book, The Joke from 1967, is an absolutely ringing denunciation of the Stalinesque show trials of the 50s in his own country. Um, it was written under communism. Um, you could do that. Uh, and... Um, Part of what makes his character uh, as a novelist interesting and um, and uh, and compelling to me is that beginning after that uh, Soviet invasion, him and Havel have this huge falling out, just vicious, and it's all over the question of what can what can and should an individual do in the face of totalitarianism. Havel was like. Basically, uh, before there was Tank Man, everyone should be Tank Man. Everyone should be out there living their truth. Um, and in fact, there's a um, yeah, there's a, a whole 15 page section in Unbearable Lightness of, of Being where the protagonist has already lived through the 68 invasion, left, went to Switzerland, then because of love and homesickness came back. Um, and then he's sort of faced with various things and he's and he's brought a petition by some dissidents and um, and he has to to, to uh, free up political prisoners. And he has to decide whether he wants to do it. And he's super annoyed that they're putting him on the spot and they have to do it in one day. And he wants to do it, but he also thinks to himself out loud, this will have zero effect. This will not help a single political prisoner. This is moral exhibitionism. Um, and he chooses not to do it. And what's interesting that most people didn't realize when they were reading this, I don't know if it was depicted in the movie, I forget, is that that happened to Kundera. 1972, Václav Havel comes to him. Um, this is, you know, uh, in the early days of what's, what's known as normalization there, which is a horrifying word to describe, a horrifying suffocation of everything about Czech culture that happened in the wake of the Soviet pact invasion. And Havel says, here's a petition. Um, who is going to sign it to say to the, uh, the secretary general, please release all your political prisoners. And he got 34 other people to sign it. And Kudera, who had been his mentor, did not. And so that's the reason why that shows up in Unbearable Lightness of Being. It's the reason why it shows up in Havel's own play called Protest, which is basically an entire evisceration of that moment uh, of the rationalization of people who decide not to do it. Um, and it is an artistic kind of expression of this incredible exchange that the two of them had after 
the Soviet invasion, but before all of the uh, free expression was shut down. So they had this back and forth um, where Kundera writes this long essay basically trying to give a pep talk to people like, yeah, I know we just got invaded and everything and it sucks, um, but we accomplished more than we thought. And look, we're a small country in Central Europe. We're kind of lucky that we exist. We did as much as we thought that we could. Um, It didn't turn out to be really good in terms of predictions, um, but he was sort of like trying to, to pep people up. Havel jumps back at him. So the first one is called Check Destiny uh, is the piece. And uh, and Havel comes back with the, with the piece saying, Check Destiny? Just puts a question mark on it and crushes him um, and says that uh, he has a, a terrible way of looking at the world. Kundera comes back at him and says that the Havel way of like signing petitions and doing this is moral exhibitionism. It is satisfying what you know, is, or you satisfying your own sense of moral superiority, doing something that is pointless. Um, and that thing, like just divided up, not just Czech dissident culture, but, but uh, Eastern European, Central European dissident culture for a generation. It's fantastic. And when we, when I was there in the early nineties, he kept coming back or he kept there was word that Kundera would finally come back and bury the hatchet with Havel. He would travel in because he went to, to Paris in uh, 75, became a French citizen um, and uh, and would not travel back. So he would travel back in a costume under an assumed name. He was super, super paranoid. Um, and he was supposed to come back to Brno in Moravia um, at a thing in 1993 where he'd finally like do the Palestinian-Israeli handshake um, <laughs> with Havel and be done with it. And he bailed like Camille before a podcast, like 30 minutes before he was supposed <laughs> to show up, except Camille showed up. People, he was just jammed up there for a second with emojis. No, no, he showed up. He said, Matt's going to talk about Prague for 35 minutes uninterrupted, so I'm just going to come late. He's been in that hotel room the whole time. Yeah. I just, I gave him a signal and I was like, I think it's maybe over, but I wish I was. I wish I was. (laughs) Anyway, sorry, I can go on all day. It's a, he's a fascinating character. Um, Totally, I have more sympathy for him now uh, than ever before, but Michael did hint at um, the top something that just gets a little bit brushed aside in the obituaries. It's way bo- way below any talk of his, you know, rank misogyny and sexism and whatever, is that he probably informed on a guy in 1950 who ended up in jail for 14 years, um, yeah, which is, which came out, yeah. came out and uh, the <laughs> very... Stop snitching and check. <laughs> stop snitching. <laughs> Nebu snitchovni. Nebu snitchovni. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Our check listeners are like, who the fuck is he having a stroke? Yeah. Um, no, um, the, and, and that's, and that is, I think he wasn't like the chief informant, but his name was on a thing. It's kind of hard to fabricate that. It was in the very well um, respected uh, Czech weekly called Respect, which has once won the World Newspaper of the Year Award and deservingly so. And it's a pretty convincing piece. And what, one of the things that's interesting about it is that one of the first people who came to his defense was Havel. Um, who said like enough? Like this, stop it. Um, let's 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 move on from this thing. Um, Kundera's and his and his nutty wife, uh, who's his literary executor, uh, said it was all smear job and terrible wrong. You you don't really see a lot of people refuting the charge. It was from 1950. He was 21 or so, and he reported on a guy uh, who, like listed his name. He wasn't the the main uh, snitch in this case, but he likely did. Um, and and a thing that. 
that whenever anyone thinks about what uh, trying to judge someone's life under totalitarianism, my first advice is always don't. Um, and and to have some respect for. Um, First of all, the people who never were in any position to compromise themselves, yes, and valorize those people, but also to recognize that it was the system that mangled people's lives to the extent that uh, Kundera's last novel was in French. He wrote it in French. He divorced himself entirely from this Czech nation that he had written so movingly about in the New York Review of Books and other places, um, and he championed literature and all of this, but he just couldn't handle it. It was it was the specter of communism, um, and what that did, and the and the choices that it foisted upon him, and the ones that he made. Um, he ultimately could not find that sense of forgiveness and rapprochement. And Havel, to his great credit, always tried. He's like, "Man, come back. Let's let's do this. Let's hug it out." Let's be good. This is your country. These are your people. Uh, you need to communicate with these readers. And he never really could. And it's a, and it's a shame. I feel badly for him. Um, let's uh, uh, transition to something that is cultural also, um, as we talked about at the top before Camille was here, that, you know, we're on a bit of a summer news week and um, it got, it's a bit slow. So I think one of the most important stories of the of the year so far of 2023, it's been a lot of competition, but I think this one is probably up at the top. And this is probably something that would resonate with uh, listeners in a way that uh, maybe you haven't read uh, uh, Milan Kundera, uh, but you definitely uh, have heard Tracy Chapman's song, Fast Car. Um, <laughs> now, this is a story of just extreme and uh, utmost importance. Now, uh, there's a cover of this song. The interesting thing about this is I read this piece, stepped out of my car today at a lunch break on the uh, great, the trial of the century that I'm a part of the OJ 2.0 that I'm part of. And I walked into a Dunkin Donuts. It was the closest thing by in this song in a Dunkin Donuts, uh, entirely staffed as Joe Biden uh, likes to point out with uh, Indian, Indian Americans <laughs> and Indian. He like, Joe will always point that out. He's like, come on, it's come important. On. Yeah. yeah, he just like he sees Indian people. He's like, hey, come on, you work at Dunkin' Donuts, and what pie faced dog pony? What are you talking about? Um, <laughs> dog pony soldier, horse faced pony soldier. What does he say? What's that fake line that he uses all the time? That he says is from a John Wayne movie that no one can actually find. <laughs> but so I walk into the Dunkin' Donuts. Dog faced pony soldier. Dog faced pony yeah. soldier. That is yeah. correct. That is correct. God save the queen, man. Um, yes, God save the queen, man. Dogface <laughs> pony soldier. She certainly was. Um, Rishi Sunak. So, so I um, walk in there, and, the, and, and the, the cover of Fast Car is playing. And this is by a chap named Luke Combs, who is apparently massively popular. And I uh, played at the Grammys this year. It sold like a bazillion copies. It's really record. good. He's, He's really good. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's just skilled. If you, I mean, he's he's not as a slick as a lot of the Nashville successful slick people are. He's slick enough to still be like country number one pop radio. Yeah. But uh, is there but is there video of him saying the n word? Yes, mean, many, 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 many. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's the thing. Yeah, he it's sings really a version important. of "Fast Car" that is just blanketed with the n word. This is yeah. I, I was like, this is really, it's so really hard away from those yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta get in a fast car to get away from those people. Um, <laughs> uh, but he doesn't say those people because he's yeah. he's not uh, that PC. But there was a piece today that I sent to you guys in the August pages of the Washington Post. Um, that uh, that says Tracy Chapman, Luke Combs, 
and the complicated response to fast car. <laughs> complicated response to fast car. The only reason that this story is being written is because, uh, according to this this piece, uh, despite the fact that um, Tracy Chapman has never publicly discussed her sexuality, um, she is referred to by uh, as a woman of color or slash LGBTQ plus artist. And uh, this uh, country guy <laughs> has, has done a version of the song, which has been a mega hit. Um, now, that's the headline. I just want to point out that throughout this piece, this is one of those fake controversies that is based on absolutely nothing, where you talk to a couple of um, uh, musicologists or, or academics that kind of align with you politically and find some things on TikTok or Twitter, and you make a trend out of it. Um, and you say, wave of complicated feelings among some listeners. That's one well, bit. Um, wave among some. Uh, yes, a wave among That's how some. Waves work. Exactly. Uh, these mixed feelings were echoed. There's some mixed feelings. Um, people had a typically visceral reaction to uh, somebody covering an I quote unquote some, iconic. Some song. people in the some wave people had, with the echoes had the yes, visceral. Yes. Others. Hmm. <laughs> Hope this situation would lead to more awareness about the larger issues in country music and black art in general. Sorry, Those beaten next to each other sounds like um, country music is a black art form, the way that's phrased. Well, about it is. The Obviously, it was invented by black well, people, as all things were. We're going to yeah. get there, too. Yeah. About the larger issues in country music and black art in general. <laughs> editor didn't catch that one. Um, and uh, then there's another line here about the complexity of the current life of the song. I mean, at the end, there is a, some, you know, random person who uh, suggested it might be a great time for quote Combs to invite a queer black female artist Sorry to join him on the tour or to offer his support. What? Quote, you used her, you used her art to enrich your career. And that opens you up to a little bit of responsibility, giving back to the community. What is the community? What did the community know. do? I don't know who the community is. Did the um, community make Fast Car or did Tracy Chapman do it? <laughs> yeah, because guess what? <laughs> Elsewhere in the article, we find out that she's probably already made a half a million dollars off of off of this cover, if not much, 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 much more. Because she owns it's the publishing. Not, it's not enough. To her it's never years. enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's never enough. And, and she doesn't give <laughs> interviews, apparently, or very many. And she released a statement to like Variety. And she was like, I think it's great. Uh, I, really, I really appreciate it. And uh, I love it. I must, think she, she says it she must likes be a misprint. Song. It must be a misprint. What she yeah. means to say is white he's, supremacy. He stole my this music. This is terrible. He's stealing my music. Yeah. He's hurting the community, yeah. which yeah. helped me author the song. Which I is don't know. Cause it's, it's a, it, she, by the way, when I was growing up, I used to play on the streets of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, out by, by Harvard. She was always like uh, doing acoustic stuff out there. And uh, Cambridge is obviously a very famous place uh, uh, for folkies back in the early 60s. It's mm. a very folky song. And I wonder if she would invite um, somebody like, uh, like Bob Dylan or some of these folkies that she owes a great debt to. Uh, to come on her tour, <laughs> you see where this go. You can go, mm-hmm. and then the then the folk can be like, actually, you know, I I took this from Robert Johnson. Like, oh, oh, great, we're all we're back to a musician of color again. And like, it's mm. always you can do this forever, and it is unbelievably stupid. But the problem I have with this article, beyond the fact that it's one of the dumbest things I've read in a long time, is that it is one of those articles that is, that is based entirely on a thought, uh, not a trend, but a thought that the author had, who then goes and seeks out people 
to validate that thought is that somebody owes somebody something because a black woman wrote a song, which was amazingly popular at the time. Um, and she only had a couple of really big hits. There was, uh, there was that and talking about a revolution and uh, one other that, that was, but, but yeah, she kind of disappeared. That's, but that's what happens with most artists. And the whole thing is about the representation of black artists in country music, which is, um, I don't know. It's the, the, the number of problems I have with this. Though. Camille, what, uh, what say you about, about Tracy Chapman being owed a great debt by this man who's made her already popular song even more popular? I mean, I think you've, you have outlined the many reasons why this is preposterous, but the most important reason is that Tracy Chapman has issued a statement. This, this yeah. famously reclusive woman has, has issued a statement saying she loves this. Apparently, she's very pleased by the fact that people are paying attention to her music and the fact that she's getting checks and perhaps even enjoys the song. I've never exp- I never expected <laughs> to find myself on the country charts, but I'm honored to be there. I'm happy honored. for Luke. I'm happy for I'm happy for Luke and his success mm. and grateful that new fans have found and embraced Fast Car. I mean, the only two interpretations of this are she means that and she's a she's an adult human who should be taken at her word or she has been completely contaminated and corrupted by white supremacy and doesn't know that what she needs to do is assert her power and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. condemn white people for stealing her music. Well, that, it's that, just so <laughs> preposterous. The, that paragraph, which is mostly her statement to Billboard, not Variety, um, is preceded by a quote from some activist or something that, that is absolutely stunning to me. I've talked to a lot of black artists about it. We don't, we don't know how to feel. <laughs> Wait, don't feel anyway. It Wait, doesn't involve no, you. No, no, you don't, It doesn't involve you. You don't direct your feelings that way. How did you feel when you heard it? You're like, oh my God. It's like, hold on, I have to figure out how to feel? That's no, no. It's like, you're not, it's not like being persuaded on a jury. Feelings <laughs> were first person plural. That's exciting. Yeah. I, we, didn't, we didn't know how to feel. All we, and it says, I've talked to a lot of black artists about it. We, all of, they didn't know how to feel. Um, uh, noting that it, uh, it, uh, it makes things a little bit easier that uh, Chapman uh, released a statement. Because your feelings uh, now are guided by the fact that this woman who wrote the song is not a complete nut. Um, and it's like, great, uh, that's really cool that people like this song. And isn't it? Just indicative of of the way all of this works, that it's all a matter of these these kind of convoluted, contrived feelings. Like I have to feel a particular way. I'm supposed to be outraged by this. Yeah. Um, I I was I was uh, flying out to the West Coast. I'm on. I'm in California now. I'm in a hotel. Um, and I was flying out to the West Coast, and I noticed that in the new um, the new newly added section of films on this United flight. Uh, was White Chicks, the classic oh, film. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, this, <laughs> the classic film. This was uh, Terry Crews' like, breakout um, uh, uh, film. Um, and this is the Wayne brothers who are wearing white face, but also <laughs> are dressed as women through, mm-hmm. for, for most of the film. And I thought to myself, it'd be really cool if someone remade this film and race-swapped it. Mm-hmm. And we just call it Black Chicks. And we have Moynihan and Welch, perhaps, no. or some, some analog, nope. starring as women. And mm-hmm. uh, they just are women of color. And I'm they listening. are appropriately made up. <laughs> and, and I can imagine that people would be outraged. 
that there would be no end to the discussions and the discourse and the upset and the outrage. And maybe so. And perhaps that's appropriate. I think it's ridiculous, but whatever. I think there's some some parallel to be drawn here. Like there is a reality. The reality is that people have to have to almost kind of practice their overconcern and hysterical outrage in con- in contexts like this. And I just don't imagine that most people prior to reading this article were here would hear a cover of Fast Car and imagine that this is yet another example of black people being undermined in some way, of the community being robbed in some fundamental way. I mean, it is just so, so obviously absurd. Um, and it's amazing to me that this kind of thing, not not just continues to find its way into into the mainstream media, into national publications, uh, uh, elite publications, like the most august newspapers that we have on the planet, um, but that it's been doing it like for years and years and years. It's part of perhaps what has helped to make um, the, the things like the sports section in the New York Times um, and perhaps the LA Times as well so irrelevant that they just feel like, ah, we'll just get rid of that. It'll be fine. Nobody will miss it except Matt Welch. I miss the LA Times, not the New York Times. There's a a bit here um, where somebody else is quoted um, who is a, uh, identified as an Afro-futurist folk artist. Um, (laughs) uh, He thought about... Uh, who is it? Uh, who is his this name person? Is Jake Blount. Blunt? I, Blount. I don't know who that is. He thought about how Big Mama Thornton's hound dog was consumed by Elvis Presley. Consumed. Or how, consumed. That's not the word. And how uh, Mem- <laughs> Memphis Minnie and, Can- and Kansas Joe McCoy's When the Levee Breaks was overshadowed by Led Zeppelin, along with the other examples of the, quote, white male genius archetype that often receives credits, uh, credit for songs by black artists. I mean, what um, do they think of Donny Hathaway's Yesterday? I mean, <laughs> it's beautiful. It's wonderful. I don't think it overshadows anyone. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. There's a magazine. At- uh, I, sorry, just quickly thing is, I just remembered something. Is There's a magazine that I wrote, a piece like a downtown art magazine that I wrote a piece for about um, cultural appropriation and Justin Bieber uh, many years ago. <laughs> I have the magazine somewhere, so I don't, this is an unedited version I just found uh, in Google Docs, and um, if, if I could read you a little bit that I wrote about Elvis, and I want to, because uh, this is the accusation, you know, that he lifted this and that he was racist, and I, and I wrote this, and um, I know this is probably going to generate some some email, and I like when things do that because it's about Elvis, uh, and I wrote, uh, and like the attacks on Elvis, the offense is only compounded by spurious accusations of racism. Not only a burglar of black culture, you see, but a burglar <laughs> of black culture who also hates black people. Because the claim that Presley was not only an appropriator of black culture, but a racist appropriator of black culture dogged him in life and death. A stubborn rumor that became a zombie point of fact hardened into conventional wisdom Wisdom when in 1989, public enemies Chuck D dropped the lyric... Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant shit to me because he was straight up racist, simple and plain. When it was pointed out that there was no evidence to sustain such a malicious charge and that artists like James Brown, who became close friends with Presley, stalwartly defended the king, 
telling an interviewer that, quote, there'll never be another like that soul brother. Also to point out, by the way, that James Brown spoke at Elvis's funeral. Uh, Chuck D attempted to disassociate himself from one of his most famous lyrics, claiming somewhat unintelligibly that, quote, Elvis was just the fall guy for American racism in my lyrics. And I wrote the damage was done. The nasty little rumor persists. And that mm-hmm. is, I think, mostly not because of uh, Chuck Diaz. It's just a way of getting Chuck D in there. Um, is that that is often said that he was a man who stole uh, black music. And what people don't often realize, and, you know, James Brown is one version of this. It was a, it was a short article. But there's a million examples of black artists who really loved Elvis. Um, was really happy that he was popularizing uh, music that, you know, modernizing, changing. It's not the same as the stuff. I mean, rock and roll in the Elvis guise is a very unique version of these songs. Um, so they're not just, you know, stealing them. But it was also a different time when people don't realize that most people didn't write their own songs. Um, you know, there's, you know, Lieber and Stoller and the Brill Building and people are getting songs from all over the place. Um, but uh, the idea that people steal songs from cultures I think is um, uh, ludicrous. And also, Elvis. You, it doesn't, you don't have to say that, and you don't have to lie and say that there wasn't a, a shit ton of racism in the music industry at the time. There was. The thing that Elvis did, or the <laughs> Elvis estate did, kind of, that was crappy, is that they would lean on people when they got a good song and say, like, uh, we'd like to record the song. Um, and so we'll buy it off you, but we're going to take all the songwriting rights, which is a Colonel Tom Parker specialty. I think, uh, and I could be getting this wrong, but I think that might have happened with uh, I Will Always Love You by Dolly Parton. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That, you, uh, mean like, by, uh, you mean by Whitney Houston. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Why is she Parton, stealing white culture? <laughs> Dolly Parton's uh, like response to Whitney Houston's success with a song is fantastic and perfect. Yeah, yeah, it's basically yeah. just like Trace Chapman, except with more zeros. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> She's exactly. like, I love this. Yes, exactly. I am a businesswoman and it's great. And she like destroys the notes and I love it. And it's fantastic. Um, I w- was uh, when you were mm. first beginning to talk, I went and looked on Spotify, did a search on the word fast car uh, or the phrase fast car song. And uh, I found 130 songs called fast car. I'm guessing that one out of those 130, 100, 115 are covers or versions of fast car. So we are going to single out uh, this one version. And it's worth pointing out, not only is is Luke Combs very successful, but this was not like, this wasn't his ticket to stardom. This is like his 16th in a row, top 10 hit. Um, And they weren't uh, planning on making this any kind of single. It was just sort of like, I I love this song. I love performing it. I'm going to record it and put it on my record. And it started taking off on streaming and elsewhere. I'm like, okay, I guess we have to do it as a single. It wasn't like the dude's career needed this song to get him over the hump. At all. Not even close. And so Tracy Chapman had the very normal artist response, which is like, this thing that I put into the world is phenomenal. It is just so much bigger than anything else. And isn't that lovely? And isn't that why you write a song? It's gorgeous. It's like people, writers always say, talk about this of losing control of their creations. And they usually say it in a positive way. Like this is no longer, it doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to everybody. And that's obviously the case with, with lots of songs. And in this one, if you just think of the original song, it, it transposes itself so 
well onto a country version. Uh, like there's a there's a few versions of songs like that. The the Peter Chris uh, Kiss solo song "Hard Luck Woman," which was uh, then uh, later recorded by uh, what's his name, uh, uh, who did the Chris Gaines character. I can remember his fake character. Oh yeah, 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 Rowdy uh, Gaines. Uh, <laughs> not Rowdy Gaines, but Chris Gaines. No, it's Garth Brooks. Garth Brooks uh, recorded yeah. it because it is a country song. It's like and it sounds. It sounds perfect that way, but what you can often, what people often attribute to racial animus and animosity is like, you know, you, you need to get some sort of, gather some sort of evidence of this. Because what normally I would attribute this stuff to is just plain old, like, greed amongst songwriters and people who control like artists like Elvis and record companies that control. I mean, you go back to so many of these artists, you know, white artists who didn't see a royalty for a song for like 30, I can't remember who it was just um, reading an interview with and they were, they went like, you know, four years of having tons of hits without ever seeing a penny. Um, without Cause they just signed a really bad contract. And if that happens when the the person who, who uh, proffers that contract to a young artist is doing that to a black artist. It's usually presumed that there was a racial motivation for it. Whereas, you know, this is, this is, um, and I'm sure that there's plenty of examples of that, but I'm just saying that oftentimes that this happened to big artists and uh, particularly in the sixties and seventies. And now you see versions of this, of people saying, how did I get 4 billion plays on Spotify and you cut me a check for 20 grand or something like that. You see a I lot mean, of conversations about that. Creedence Clearwater Revival famously like uh, re- had a thousand hits in a row for four years or three years in the late 60s and uh, and John Pogarty got like none of it and then spent 20 years bitching about it and being in lawsuits and stuff and Saul Zantz was part of it and Chuck Berry too. I mean if you uh, if you mm-hmm. haven't seen Hail Hail Rock and Roll please do yourself a mitzvah and go check it out the Taylor Hackford documentary from the late 80s right around the time of Unbearable Lightness of Being. Does it include any footage from uh, from his clubs? <laughs> no none of the special camera angles that he's you know few people know about that by the way right. it's it's old wait, man it's that's the thing it's a, it's a wait, yesterday's news know about know about what I oh chuck know. berry owned a club in. and he had uh he had uh installed cameras in the toilet no not in the in the bathroom in the toilet in the toilet yeah he wanted yeah. to see wow. see, see it coming yeah, down yeah yeah yeah, yeah. See, look it wow. up it's true yeah wait he did it or someone did it I think he did it. I'm pretty yeah. sure that he was like, got me. Yeah. Chuck, yeah. Chuck's, Chuck's he duck walked his way into jail. Um, <laughs> I don't think he went to jail for that, but uh, fact, no, fact check. No, joking. Yeah. Fact check. Uh, Matt Welch, uh, fast car was also a song by the dream, which was actually inspired by Prince's little red Corvette. Oh, um, okay. So we should, so my, we should know that at least some of the, some of the, in, the, 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 the Spotify, um, listings that you see include that I'm sure okay. because it's a great song. Um, Can you hum a few bars? I need a no, but I'll tell you the lyrics. I need a fast car. Want to see it zoom? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's all I'll give you. But it's very it's the much male it's, version of fast car. It's very yeah. it's very clearly inspired by little. Car. It's very clearly inspired by little red Corvette. Um, but I, I wanted to acknowledge a, a kind of white privilege, which okay. is becoming apparent to me as a result of us discussing this this uh, fast car controversy, um, the fabricated controversy invented by this preposterous person who I'm sure imagines themselves a journalist or something. Um, a white creator. And I, you, I wish you could see the kind of asterisks that I'm imagining in my mind when I use yeah. that phrase. They hear it. Um, 
they they are permitted to uh, to own their own achievements as individuals. A black creator, it is presumed that their achievements and accomplishments belong to the community as a whole. (laughs) And and the community as a whole has the right to insist on who can enjoy it and who can't enjoy it. How do we feel about this? Has to worry about how they feel collectively (laughs) when they hear someone else utilizing it. They imagine that they were in some way, shape, or form uh, a party to the creation of this particular thing. It's so outrageous <laughs> you you had nothing to do with it you may not have any talent whatsoever you might be a talentless scumbag who just so happens to share a couple of phenotypic traits with someone who is remarkable and talented and gifted and has actually gone out of gone out and taken the risks of creating something great and putting it out into the world or creating something and putting it out into the world and having it be deemed great by any number of people of any number of backgrounds and you won't be permitted to enjoy your achievement on your own because you didn't do it by yourself. You didn't do it for your own enjoyment. You did it so that the entire community could insist that they are mm-hmm. also a part of your achievement. And there is something that I, I find particularly grating about that. And maybe that's just me. Um, but I don't think it's it's just no. I've I've, I've said this before. Like uh, one of the greatest actual examples of white privilege is all that bullshit. Collectivist bullshit is not thrown on the whites for yeah. the most part. Occasionally, the, there's attempts, um, but like it doesn't stick. It, it, we're not asked to think about our community. We're not asked to like oh, what you said about this politics thing. You are betraying your, you're not a real white, <laughs> you're an Uncle Tim. <laughs> People who write for the, for the Washington Post and idiot academics tend to not understand the difficulty of creation in, mm. in this context. So if you're, if mm. you're covering a song, it's like, well, you just, you just covered it. That's it. I mean, you just took the music and then you did it yourself. It's like, no, it's much more complicated than that. And if you actually want to like delve into that, listen to any recent interview with Rick Rubin, where he talks about uh, creativity and he's amazingly interesting about it in talking about how, you know, just the slightest change in something, uh, record the song with the lights off, um, do it at two in the morning and not at 9am or 9am, not two in the morning. Uh, he sent like the red hot chili peppers to like a, a mansion where they set up a studio because the vibe felt different and the music would, 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 would be different. And it turned out that he says that it turned out that that's the case. But if you look at something like, I don't believe that De La Soul in my favorite De La Soul song is a Steely Dan song. The entire chorus of, I know E Y E no is um, from the song Peg by Steely Dan, which is also a great song, and, but it's totally different, right? It's the, the entire the music is the same. When you listen to it, you're like, oh, that's Steely Dan, and it's played through it. And that was back when sampling; they were playing huge chunks of songs too, not even just like little things looped. There's like big chunks of those songs, and I don't think that oh my god, they're 
you know, taking white meat. Well, because I'm not an idiot. I would never think of that. Because <laughs> Steely Dan is a pretty white band. Um, I would never think of, like white music. But I would, I would also just take the race out of it entirely because that's what we should do with most everything. Is And you realize that the, the, they're not taking the music from them. There is a problem when you don't pay people, which is why Three Feet High and Rising only recently, mm. after the death of Trugoy, actually, um, that it only recently came onto Spotify. It took 20 plus, almost 30 years to clear all the samples because they didn't clear the samples and they just mm. put it out, which is a bad idea. But it doesn't mean that those songs are Steely Dan songs. I mean, obviously there's layering on that in there. You're taking something and you're changing it significantly, right? But even if you're not, even if you're doing Hound Dog and doing the lyrics the same, not changing anything, your performance is not the previous person's performance. And to think that that's all it takes is just to take the music and you take the music and you sing the lyrics and that person sings the lyrics. That, that, that it's that easy means you know nothing about the act of creating music. Hmm. If you haven't listened to the newly Spotify Three Feet High and Rising in a while, or just have There's forgotten a few your samples CD. missing, by the way. Oh, really? I right? didn't notice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a couple that aren't. I, I mean, I assume, I, did, I didn't listen to it because they, they said that there was some they couldn't clear. My guess is, um, like one in particular, which would be expensive, is the amazing, probably the best song that they ever re recorded, uh, Roller Skating Jam called Saturday, which has um, a couple of uh, Michael Jackson samples in it. Um, but you have to listen really close to them and you can hear them that it's like there's Michael Jackson in there, like Jackson 5 stuff. I'm sure that's really hard to clear. And anything that has the Beatles in it, it's very hard to clear too. Yeah. Um, very expensive. But usually um, people like Paul McCartney will be mentious about it and be like, no, nah, just use it. It's cool. And that yeah, I mean, often Beastie too. Boys so, got yeah, a lot of that for, yeah. for Paul's boutique. Paul's boutique yeah. Yeah. So wait, are you saying there, there's stuff that... The Jackson, I, I presume the Jackson estate owns most of the it's like rights. CBS, by, that, the by the way, just to be clear, that's a guess because I saw that there were some samples that they couldn't okay. clear and that they pulled out of the remasters. But I imagined it was probably something like that mm. um, rather than, you know, some old soul record or some old funk record. I mean, you think mm -hmm. of like Ghetto Boys, Minds Playing Tricks on Me and that that guitar is an Isaac Hayes song. And mm -hmm. that's all it is. I mean, that entire thing is the guitar bit in an Isaac Hayes song. God, that, that's which a is a great song. It's an amazing yeah. song. And yeah. the Ghetto Boys song is an amazing song too. But mm -hmm. you love that song because of that guitar loop. And that is, um, and you know, there's an incredible amount of creativity to it. If you, if you, um, cause we're going really nerdy in a lot of subjects today. Uh, Pete Rock and CL Smooths uh, on Mech and the Soul Brother, which is a great record. Uh, they reminisce Troy. That, oh, yeah. Uh, God, such that, a great song. Yeah. An amazing song. One of the best hip hop songs of the 90s. Mm -hmm. That horn bit, which is that, is in the middle of a solo on like a free jazz record in the seventies. It's a second on the record and it's wow. brilliant that Pete Rock took that and looped it. And you think that that's going to be the hook of some song. It's not, it's a little bit of some larger horn part in a, in a song. And that's like Pete Rock is an absolute genius at that stuff. So, mm. so creation is a complicated thing and borrowing from other people is a complicated thing and it shouldn't be dismissed as, you know, something you know, let's look at the race of the people involved. It's ludicrous, ludicrous. And and also, let's not forget, like, the premise of the article is that, you know, the country music charts are no place for a queer black woman. <laughs> um, Which is so weird. Lil Nas X had the biggest song probably of the last <laughs> 10 years, right? Has there been a bigger song? And uh, yeah. And there was some talk about, like, that's weird. It's Old Town Road. It's pretty country-ish. 
Why isn't it on the country charts? Well, it's, it's with people, Billy Ray Cyrus, yeah. Well, hold on, hold on. It was well, before. It, eventually the, with Billy Ray Cyrus. Right? Yeah, so he shit, didn't get on. The original one wasn't? No. no. I didn't know that. No. Know that. It was just him. Yeah. No, I, but that was that. that was an absolute brilliant play, which is like, I see. let's just I get Billy Ray Cyrus that. and do it. And who's going to say no? And also it's awesome and everybody loves it. And yeah. he did it and it went number one in the country charts or at least top 10 or whatever. Um, and it's just great. Like that was that song too exploded much more than fast car on the on the culture you know like when the bts guys did it on the grammys or one of the award shows is so phenomenal and like Lil Oz x i think i think he's a gay he's like a gay he's, person he's, he's exceptionally gay. <laughs> yeah. he's very i love very that he gay. at one point thought it necessary to come out yeah, <laughs> you didn't need to say that. Well, yeah, I appreciate it, but nah. yeah, he came out and went over the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he came. He came out of a cannon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the, the the whole. I mean, think of the, the 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 just stupidity of trying to track down like the genre of song who was dominant racially in the genre were people mm. treated unfairly in the past in this genre is the genre the exclusive domain of a particular ethnic group or mm -hmm. you know racial group or country you know like i was like why are there there's not enough um hispanic people in uh, in irish music it's like, well, I mean, it'll, maybe it'll get there. I mean, is, is, does it mean because there aren't that the Irish are like, oh, I can't let the Hispanics and they'll really fuck everything up. You know, it's like, no, it's just like, no, it, if it happened, it happened. I mean, no one, no one cares eventually. You know, it's like when, except, you know, it's really funny because I think I asked the Beastie, but the worst interview that I've ever done, um, second, I always say Sam Altman, but the second one was the Beastie Boys, the two surviving Beastie Boys. I mentioned this before. And it was actually not Mike D. Mike D was really, really great and lovely. And um, uh, Ad-Rock was actually nice before we started the interview. And then he put on this little little uh, shtick, which was super annoying. But um, I was annoyed enough by it but, uh, that I think I did ask about cultural appropriation because, you know, Ad-Rock became like super lefty, right? He married the girl from Bikini Kill, Kathleen Hanna, became very active, denounced his own father, in the Me Too movement, who then died quickly soon after. It's like a last oh. thought is his son denouncing him, um, which is kind of crazy to me. Did it's they like, denounce the License to Ill tour, which included uh, 100%, girls and yes. cages? And, uh, being sprayed with beer, endlessly yeah. apologized for this. But as the, as the winds shifted, I was like, but you guys are still popular as rap artists, right? You did record like some punk rock stuff and an album like check your head, which is a mix of instrumental, like kind of funk stuff and some hardcore stuff and then rap. It's like, but how, how much in the modern culture in the modern political culture can you be when, if you actually are to go the whole way, you would be accused of appropriating a culture and you made more money than most people, right? You made a lot of money and you were more popular than almost any other sort of rap outfit of the 1990s, right? I mean, um, they've got to be up in the top five with yeah. records sold, right? I mean, d d should they feel bad about that now? Mm -hmm. Because it's the same thing as saying, well, the cultural mores have changed, so therefore, you know, um, the thing that we liked, in the, we can't watch this movie anymore, right? We can't watch uh, Blazing Saddles or something anymore. Is it going to be, or should it be the case that we can't listen to the Beastie Boys anymore because we've now figured out this thing called cultural appropriation that nobody knew anything about or cared about in the 1990s and eight, 80s and 90s? And 2000s, One of the actually, yeah. 
one of the um, to bring it back to Chuck D. One of the things I like about him, and he's a great Twitter follow. If you don't, especially if you like nineteen uh, seventy sports, as uh, as I, I tend to do, because uh, he's a big fan. He's an artist, uh, and it does a lot of drawings about that. He inducted the Beastie Boys in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah um, and yeah, yeah. and you know they they had back and forth. You know, it wasn't just like fight for your right to party. Uh, the public enemy did party for your right to fight, which was sort of a response. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A, a it was like thing. Southern man. <laughs> a little <laughs> Southern bit. man is a response. <laughs> and response and yeah. Chuck D is super eloquent talking about how awesome these guys are. Vernon Reed also from Living Color is a great Twitter follow. And people will sometimes try to bring anything like that noise into his kitchen and he will just slap it down. Like, yeah. don't come in here talking about that crap. We're talking mm. about music. We're talking about mm. like, uh, I, I, it's one of my uh, goals in life to talk to, uh, to interview Chuck D generally speaking, but also to hear his perspective now on the Elvis lyric, which I think we've talked about once before. I will defend on artistic merits in the same way that I will defend the Guns N' Roses song one in a million on artistic merits. Like it's an expression of a thing at the time. Um, uh, and it's a piece of art itself, even if the art is scabrous and wrong or whatever, like it's, there's something about it that is, that is authentic to its own thing. Um, which might sound like a dodge, but I, I like weird songs. Nick Cave had a great, who, if you don't follow his Red Hand Files, you really should. It's uh, wonderful. He just responds to people and talks about stuff. And occasionally people will say, it, you know, isn't it terrible that Morrissey is an asshole? Or have you thought about like revisiting uh, or maybe not singing the full lyrics of this or that song um, that came up uh, that has some, you know, his whole murder ballads record and O'Malley's bar has enough to get an entire country canceled. Um, and uh, and he has a great response to that, which is that you have to treasure songs and to 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 treat them as their own creations and respect them. And they live in the world and m maybe you can adapt them for your own artistic purposes. But like. Let's not go out and and kind of defame the thing that was created. Um, I think there's something to that. That's uh, that's. It's done in the moment now, though. I mean, you have Lizzo who comes out with a record, yeah. and people on Twitter. It's not even like an or it's like people on Twitter are like, oh, this is offensive because she says spaz or something. I think that's yeah, mm -hmm. and like immediately like is is like hustling back to the studio to re-record. It's like, does the original writing of that song is it is it that kind of ephemeral and pointless in this genre of music, or do you actually think of it as a bit of poetry? And I don't change the poetry that I write uh, based on fan feedback. It's from me. I did it's, it. It's, it's my it, art. That it's is a wild fascinating uh, subject. Kat Rosenfield wrote about that uh, Lizzo thing um, specifically for reason that was really, really good. And in, into that um, Taylor Swift, who hopefully my daughter is going to go see pretty soon uh, for the first time as her first concert. So um, that's crazy. Right. Um, but she re-records her old records and and they have that controversy, too, which I think we talked about recently um, of like, how do you revisit this this old uh, seemingly kind of misogynist thing when you're re-recording your record to own the master? It's a complicated story. Um, I err on the side of like, just respect the original song and go for it. Um, but also 
I wonder in the Lizzo case, so much songwriting right now is really factory produced. Of course, like, that's mm -hmm. what I'm, yeah. What yeah, was the yeah. what was the song that Paul McCartney and Kanye worked on that like seventy five different people were on Beyonce too or something? Um, and like you can't you cannot see the connection between all of them, uh, but it's usually some dudes from Sweden who are always part of these songwriting yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, collabs. Yeah. A guy yeah, who used to be in a band with like that's how he makes his money now is that he's part of these songwriting like they they meet he comes to new york sometimes and just sort of like has um collabs with other big songwriters and they sit in a room for eight hours and they just like have five ideas uh, or you know they challenge themselves to have five ideas and the the hope is that one of them becomes a pop hit and then he can 12, you know 12 angry I, men in i that. wonder if if I mean, I think, Matt, you're referring to four or five seconds, which was actually Rihanna, uh, yes. Kanye West, yeah. and Paul McCartney. There's yeah, only okay. three people involved okay. in that song. So and being Rihanna put, and Beyonce seven don't songs. look alike. I just want to <laughs> establish that for yeah, you, racist yeah, exactly. Matt Welch. Yeah. Um, they also worked on another song together, but it was just Kanye and Paul McCartney. It was only one, and it was a song that was written for his uh, daughter, North, uh, shortly after she was born. And it was actually him singing as his mother to his daughter it, because his mother had passed, and he was imagining oh. what she would have said to his daughter. Um, and it's actually, it's a really beautiful song. It's really great. It's weird that Nick Fuentes wrote the lyrics to that. <laughs> I, I didn't know he was a songwriter. But, you know, you gotta, you gotta take what you can get. McCartney thing, is such a fucking promiscuous bastard that, like, he, he will go ahead and release, what, what was it, three or four different, like, techno records? In the yeah, 90s, yeah, Moynihan, yeah, or the aunts, 90s, under yeah, a pseudonym. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, oh, yeah, I did this while I was doing Liverpool Oratorio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, terrible what? album, that is, too. What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> I just did a remix album. It was really good, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 actually, the remix album, McCartney 3, is good. And it's it has, great. It's great. It has um, a, a lot of, uh, like, like art, like Beck's on it. Beck, um, the Beck's on it's um, really great. That Korean, uh, he says, uh, Anderson Pack. Uh, that guy who's a right. he's, he's really good on it. That's the best. He's really good. Yeah, it's amazing, and that's a great, the best track on the album. He's, but the one the one thing I want to yeah, make he's sure, interesting too. Very interesting. And one thing I want to make sure that people do, and this is I think this is an important thing to ask people when this these kind of conversations come up, because it's always presumed, and nobody has an answer for this when you actually ask them. So, for instance, we talk about music, and we have to kind of rewrite the ones in the past or edit out things. And, you know, film, you get these, like, disclaimers, or they're going to cut certain scenes. You know, Steven Spielberg, to his great credit, uh, said he was um, really sorry that he uh, altered E.T. and took the guns out of the end of E.T. and replaced them with walkie-talkies. Then he was like, you know what? That was a mistake. You don't screw with the original, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. When, you, when you see something like an old, uh, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you an example that's actually racist. An example of it would be the old uh, Three Stooges cartoons uh, made by uh, three Jewish brothers um, and, you know, various writers. And periodically they have black characters in them. And the black characters, and people tend to forget this, is that stereotypes um, of, of black men in particular in the 1940s was scared and superstitious. Those were the two Ooh. things that you always got. They're, yeah, exactly. Bugged out eyes, like I've seen a ghost kind of thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was always like, and it was always I like, think, feet I don't... Think, I think the yeah. phrase is, I've seen a ghost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> feet don't fail yeah. me now. Like that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, And those are like really uncomfortable to watch. You're like, holy Jesus, mm -hmm. this, this is crazy. But when somebody says we can't show that, 
or mm -hmm. we can cut out that scene. The question nobody asks is why? And it seems like, well, of course they ask that. No, they don't. Because the question that you have to ask yourself is, if there is an exposure to this, uh, do we hope that people don't understand how race was viewed in 1940? We hope that we're going to sanitize it so when you do watch it without people, you know, because these will become common currency, those will become the artifact. You'll have to be try very hard to find the originals. And you see that you're offering a fake view of the past. You're, you're airbrushing the past and saying everything was fine. One would think if you cared about racism, race relations in this country, that you might want to have that unvarnished to show people what it was really like and how bad it actually was. Because the assumption is always that the American people are too stupid. I guess that people would think that watching Gone with the Wind, uh, watching a Three Stooges short would make somebody uh, into a racist. I mean, literally seeing a scared chef in the Three Stooges is going to be like, oh my God, this is the first step to the Turner Diaries. This is so insane that if you are an academic that's writing about this stuff or recommending that people do this, you must understand that as an academic, you have to have some sort of science behind it, some sort of cause and effect. You'd have to prove to me that exposure to these images of the past is deleterious to people in the present. And no one has ever tried to prove that because they cannot prove that. What they end up doing is making the past um, look a lot cleaner for us because we don't want people to be discomfited by a film or by a you know piece of music. No, 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 we should be, because Matt's point about One in a Million and, and songs like that is right. Two Live Crew's record was considered a thing that you made uh, free speech campaigns behind. Luther Campbell was the person who did that. But if, but if you go back and listen to that. It's nasty. It's as nasty as they want to be. It's, ra it's like racist, like, like, you know, me so horny, stuff like that. And it's like, if, if, that, if that's not misogyny, there's no such thing as misogyny, right? But who cares? Because the record stands on its own as a amazing time capsule, capsule for the 1980s and things that people like liberals used to fight for. And I don't want that stuff to be, to be taken away. I don't want it to go away because it offers a false picture of the past. I just want to point out, um, and I'll do it quietly to maintain everyone's respect here, that someone came into where the room Camille's in with, with a tray as we were talking. Um, yeah. There's a... There's no a pants I'm, on. I'm there, hungry. I haven't eaten all day. There's yeah. I don't... You're <laughs> uh, There's gradations here, though, that are worth thinking about, um, which are that, okay, sure, but what happens if you are the copyright holder, Right. And let's say it's an estate. Let's say it's it's Dr. Seuss. We know Dr. Seuss had some pretty, pretty kind of yeah. risque stuff in, in the 40s. Uh, I like to look at it because I like that kind of stuff, but not, not everyone does. Um, but like their job is in their minds <laughs> to- Very progressive guy too, by the way. Uh, Theodore Geisel. He very much was. Um, uh, he did some jingoistic anti-Japanese <laughs> stuff in the 40s. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and so they want to put the best foot forward on the estate. And so they, they would like to choose not to do that. It's them. And then there's the, uh, kind of IP rights holder issue. So if you own the three stooges, I don't know who does anymore. If it's uh, maybe it's all somehow Probably uh, MGM. Com yeah. completely open, but it's MGM. So does MGM 
Um, do they feel like that's putting their best corporate foot forward, showing that um, to do that, uh, knowing that there could be some like, you know, there's a one in 500 chance that this will be the target of some campaign that will not be worth it. Or do they look at it like this is of historical importance? It's hard. I think it's con- conflicted. I, w- I want to encourage all of those people to have a warts and all approach, but it's not me tending to the value of an IP or an asset or a family tradition. But the thing is, Matt, I mean, I see what you're saying, but I think the thing is, is we see so frequently that people in corporations make political decisions not based on the opinions of the public, but the opinions of 15 people in the room, which is how you get a Bud Light situation. But I think that there is, and I'm going to be, and let me try to be PC here to, to, you know, go, go backwards on what I said a little bit is that, and you know, Camille and I, and well, all three of us have talked about this before in one book in particular, is if you think of Herge and you think of Tintin and Tintin in the Congo, which mm. is just like a straight up racist. It's like crazy how racist that book is. But the thing about it is that it's that's, bad. it's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. That, that is something that is like, they took that out of circulation and, um, you can still get it, but it's like not, it's not, I, I went to the Tintin store once in Belgium, in uh, Brussels, and it's, uh, it's not prominently displayed. But that I think is slightly different. I understand that more. <laughs> Did you have to knock on some like back door? Hey. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. want the racist stuff. Do you got the, yeah. you got the racist like, yeah, stuff? Yeah. You want to come in? We got lots of racist books. Or is it Tintin's? Yeah. 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 We have Tintin goes to Baghdad. These are very racist. <laughs> <laughs> it gets four racisms. Um, no, but that's not like for kids' books. I think that I understand that. I like exposing like young kids to this stuff is a slightly different. Um, I'm still not that squeamish about it because most everybody I know was exposed to this stuff when they were kids and they turned out okay. But, um, but yeah, like I, I can imagine, like, I don't want to read that. Um, like my, my daughter thought other 10, 10 books were racist. Um, without any, you know, prodding from anyone. She's like, geez, that Chinese <laughs> one is pretty racist. And I'm like, yeah, well. What does she think about the Soviet Union one? Hopefully she's fine with like. Yeah, yeah. She she loves yeah. that one because it's yeah. uh, down on the reds. <laughs> I I, um, I bought HP uh, Lovecraft. Well, it's actually. Are you chewing food while you're talking right now? I just want to. You know, if you didn't call attention to it, no one would notice. Uh, <laughs> I, have yes, to agree, I, I have to agree with Camille on that one. I don't yeah. know. I didn't notice. Yeah. I, I, bought a book, up. I bought yeah. a book for Leah and it's, it's the title of it is HP loves crap. HP loved crafts. Dragon. HP yeah. loved crafts. Nope. Dragon. Now I know he's eating. That's all <laughs> no I can do. There's no D. Can, can you just let me eat my chicken skewers in peace? Yeah. And, and, on the on the cover of the book, on the cover of the book, it says for beginning readers, uh, right? Move it, move yeah. that over. I gotta see that. I there bought this. I bought this for my daughter. There you go. I yeah, bought yeah. it for my daughter, and I tried to read it to her the other day, and discovered, much to my horror, that this is a this is a terrible book for children. Yes, I mean the yes. book actually ends with someone leaping out of a window, killing themselves. Yes. Nope. And there is the last page of the book is actually looking up at the window. But what you can see in the foreground is someone's dead eyes <laughs> looking at you. What? And you could see this. This is the, 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 move, the drawing move it, move it. is move like it, so in the style 
in the style yeah. of Dr. Seuss. I think yeah, that must yeah. be Theodore Geisel that did that because the same typeface too. It is. I yeah. mean, it must have been who did, him did. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, you can't read this to your children. Don't do it unless you uh, want them to have <laughs> nightmares. Leah said, I don't understand, Daddy. I don't understand what's happening in this. Wait, picture. you went through with it? You were like, I, I okay. didn't. Got to finish. Yeah. No. Well, this is the problem. I actually, I started and she was very into it because we had just finished the BFG, Big big Friendly Giant. And mm-hmm. we were just going to read this like right before bed. And I'm flipping through the pages and I'm changing the words as I go. Skipping several pages at a time. And she said, you missed the page, daddy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, she, she needs <laughs> to see this because if I say we're not going to read this, she might have a meltdown right before yeah. bed. So yeah. she had to see the images. Um, oh, my God. But I didn't really read the story authentically. And yeah. at the end, when I closed the book and she did see like the guy going through the window she says, I don't understand this story. And it's me either, sweetheart. Mm-hmm. I don't understand. Have, I lied have, to my child. Have any of you um, seen, I think it was actually recently republished. I was trying to find it and I couldn't find it. But uh, the German uh, children's book, uh, Der Struvel Peter, The Shock-Haired Peter, where mm-hmm. like oh. it's insane. It's the most violent. It's like the ones like don't don't play with uh, with uh, scissors and like the images of like someone's like head being cut off by scissors and like thumbs being a spraying blood. It's the it's most great. intense, most German thing ever. And people are like, how it. did the Holocaust happen? I was like, <laughs> yeah. that's how all those kids were primed from childhood. It's the, wow. the German children books are children's books are crazy, and those are like late eighteen hundreds, I think. Um, but they they're they're wildly violent and um and terrifying so so yeah don't don't buy those books for your kids buy them for people in your family though because they're hilarious otherwise so. yeah i mean on that uh, like don't think that jan schwankmeyer just because he does like animation and puppets that's not that's not for your 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 four-year-olds either people yeah. that the, the czech filmmaker there's <laughs> they they got that part of the world has some weird ideas about what what the kids need to see <laughs> yeah um, I do see, uh, uh, Camille, that there's a story of uh, somebody, uh, Arizona Republican named Eli Crane, Representative Eli Crane, who I'm looking at um, this image of him um, speaking in the house, and he looks like a magician. Um, <laughs> it's very, very odd. He looks like a close magic uh, uh, practitioner. <laughs> he, and I'll t- I'm going to read you this story. Um, just came across the transom. Very important from NBC News. Representative Eli Crane of Arizona referred to black people as colored people mm. on Thursday during floor debate over his proposed amendment to an annual defense policy bill. Uh, I don't know what that's. Um, <laughs> my amendment has nothing to do with uh, whether or not colored people or black people or anybody can serve. It has nothing to do with any of that stuff, he said. Um, I'm going to give him a pass. Okay. I think you have to. And you know why I'm going to give him a pass? Because the um, for people who are not very sophisticated, and I look at this guy, he doesn't look very sophisticated. Um, the uh, the term of art is flipped around with a preposition in the middle. Yeah. Uh, so so it's people of color. It's it's, it's you, I, I, you can get confused by that. Um, and if you knew it was a bad thing, I imagine you probably wouldn't say it on the house floor. So. Um, <laughs> So I don't know who Eli Crane is, but uh, I just saw that on the top of the Drudge Report, and I figured that I'd chime in. That that is a, that is a breaking news. Story. I mean, I don't even understand how it would be a bad thing. Like, mm. how is it bad? It's antiquated, but it's yeah. not bad. 
It's not pejorative. It just kind of sounds old. What about coloreds? It, I think it's the same. It's not obviously is bad. It? It's not obviously bad. It's just antiquated. I mean, I think all of it is preposterous, but I feel the same way about capital B black. Um, yeah, it's just antiquated. It's not it's not like calling someone a, a nigger with with deliberate, malicious, malignant intent. Like, it's just a fundamentally different thing. You would never have um, a black person speaking on the radio or television in the 1940s or 50s calling themselves that hideous word that uh, Camille wants us to say, but we won't. Um, <laughs> you're never going to get it. But um, you got to uh, si- sign up for the Substack. Yeah, never going to get it. Listen to the members only. Never, never going to get then it. Then you'll uh, get it. Yeah. <laughs> you do, to Camille's point, though, you would h- hear people um, frequently referring to themselves as colored. Because that was the kind of nomenclature of the time. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know when it became an offensive thing. I'm like, I'm not, I, I just don't know the, the, the development of the word into something that uh, was no longer preferred. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, Matt, you remember your, your daughter getting mad at you for saying Negro League Baseball Museum. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's just like, wait, that's an instinct. Maybe it's that sounds like funny. it should be bad. So she got dewokified in France. Um, by watching a lot of South Park and by actually having it at her school in France that she went to for a semester, she had one super triple woke teacher and she's like, ah, come on now. Uh, so it was like too much. And, uh, and her grandfather is, let's say he likes, uh, he likes Finky more than he likes <laughs> yeah, yeah, other yeah. people. But, uh, um, Think he's a liberal, though. Come on. Um, yeah. A um, lot, 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 lot of things under the word liberal in the world. Mm-hmm. But um, she came back and, and I talked to her about what we talked about with Ethan Strauss about the Oakland A's announcer, <laughs> yeah. Glenn Kuyper, getting bounced. And go and listen to the episode because always Ethan is so thoughtful and precise mm-hmm. in his language, which I really appreciate. And Kuyper now writes for what? American Renaissance. <laughs> Huns.org. He's at VDare now. No, but I, so I wear this shirt uh, from the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City and uh, Kuiper, Kuiper, which I haven't been to, but I look forward to it's going. Really, it's really good, yeah. Um, Kuiper was uh, talking with some enthusiasm about it and on air about a recent visit there, and he mispronounced the word in a way that sounds like the bad thing. And he was fired. They like did a thing and whatever. You can listen to the whole episode. But I was recounting this to my recently dewokified daughter. And as much as she's been recently dewokified, she's like, you just can't say that word. Just can't mm-hmm. do it, Camille. Um, so, again, we need to have her on the podcast or just on a one-on-one with yeah. Camille Foster because, you know, you are referred to as King Camille in my household. Still, weirdly, even, weirdly even not after by me. the time in France? I probably thought she had another word for him at the time in France. (laughs) That didn't dull her appetite for money, weirdly enough. So, uh, yeah. Coco now, who's eight. Delusions uh, about my levels, my my level of prosperity. Oh, no. Like Coco's probing. Like, uh, like uh, she's like, how rich is Camille? I'm like, yeah, you're eight. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. What do you? talking about so they even had a fantasy in which uh actually I'm, i shouldn't say this out loud but since this is a Probably special kind of upside down nope, upside down episode <laughs> um coco said that she had this is my eight-year-old daughter who's you know usually pretty good uh said that she was talking about with my 15 year old they had this pact where they might think about 
locking me and my wife uh, in the basement saying that they've been orphans so they could be adopted by Camille. <laughs> so that way they would become rich. There's one way of doing they, it. They would still like, like throw a little also food. also just go to school and work hard. Food <laughs> down in the basement sometimes. Who wants to uh, do that one yeah. No. Uh, which is nice. And then I, at, at some point, I think that we would be allowed out again. Um mm. So, um, I'm just thinking of your daughter becoming <laughs> Steve Martin, Steve Martin's character in the jerk is like, I grew up a poor black child. <laughs> I'm just saying I grew up a rich black child. <laughs> you could be like, no. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if that movie would be acceptable today. The jerk. You know? Yeah. Mm. I, I, think, I, I think probably I, it hasn't, I don't think it's gotten the warnings in front I, of it. Like here, here's a, a here's a thought, right? Like, like with the Luke Holmes thing, it, there actually isn't a controversy. Like with Lil Nas, there, he can get in the country car- charts. It doesn't matter. People are fine actually in the country. It's similar to our but, but, but how 4th he, of July how discourse. Easy? So yeah. like, yeah, it, yeah, it is easy. There are like vulnerable points that activists can like press on skittish executives to make idiot little decisions but the no, broad no, american want, public it's like it's no one's ever going to, there's never going to be a majority yeah, of to course. cancel blazing saddles of course blazing Nobody, saddles yes, is fucking yes. funny because it was also partially written by richard pryor and it's a movie about how racists are dumb uh but it uses words that are magic and you can't use but i would say this this is the updated version of the sokal hoax um, Alan Sokol's mm. uh, famous hoax that uh, submitting a bunch of gobbledygook uh, to a magazine published Language. by Duke University um, <laughs> called Social Text. Um, and they wrote a book about it, et cetera, just to, to, to make fun of postmodernism and things like that. And um, the modern version of that, I would imagine, would be to take a movie like The Jerk and see if you could uh, you know, create a character of a writer um, you know, create the whole thing, AI image of you, like walking across the campus at Bard, uh, and say you graduated last year and get it published somewhere and see, because there's no appetite for this. It comes out of nowhere. You could just create something out of whole cloth and then see how far you can take it and see what, how, how many people, and then get people to sort of petition, um, whoever owns the film or whatever streaming platform it's on to have a warning put in front of it or have it taken off. And I think you'd be surprised at how little it would take to get people to do that. Um, because as you point out, there's not a lot, uh, there's not a groundswell of, of anger or upset about any of this stuff. And then it's, it's particularly in time periods. In 2020, end of 2020, you could get anybody to do anything. It was the most remarkable period in American cultural history where you could get anyone to react to almost anything in a a sort of a nervous way. The right thing to do is just to get rid of this thing. And there was that moment, um, the reckoning that never was the conversation. We have to have a conversation in the conversation, by the way, when people say that now, um, I don't know what we call what, what's been happening for the past, you know, eight, nine, 10 years, but it seems to me like a very prolonged, annoying conversation that's going nowhere. So <laughs> I imagine that you could probably provoke a lot of that stuff in the midst of these quote unquote conversations. So I know, I know um, that Matt was waxing poetic on uh, <clears throat> issues about regarding other countries. You guys didn't talk about the secret service cocaine investigation. Did you? I sure did not. No, no, no. Um, do you, I, have, I am, do you have a culprit? 
I mean, I'm curious about your perspectives on the Secret Service. Do you still Service. think it was Pete Buttigieg? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Wow. But if, if you don't know, the Secret Service has, uh, they've closed the investigation because they cannot figure out whose cocaine it was. Um, it, what was it? Like less than a gram, I think is what they it ended up saying. Ton, yeah. It was like found found in a locker. In a the, locker. The lockers that um, in like the basement, like, right? A bunch of people get to use, and yeah. or the lower level, anyways. Yeah. Um, and there are apparently hundreds of people who had like come through there. It says some. I, I read in one story, I think that they had several hundred uh, potential persons of interest related to this. And reading the story. I was struck by, not surprised, but <laughs> struck by the number of Republicans who were just vociferous and completely outraged um, that the Secret Service could not figure out whose cocaine this was. I mean, there isn't much left. Yeah. They had already enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. They weren't. Maybe they were at the White House. But, I mean, it's such an obvious, preposterous waste of time. Like I'm trying to imagine a universe where anyone would care about this story in any way, shape, yeah. or form. Yeah. It's um, a fun one to 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 make fun of uh, Hunter Biden and and like follow because it's hilarious. But it seems perfectly plausible to me because everyone's saying this is a cover up. It's a cover up. My favorite one that I saw today was this. I think it was a Republican that was on Fox who was who was like, "Well, they would find it. What if this was anthrax?" I'm like, "Well, it's not anthrax." That's like, you know, that's like, <laughs> it's a totally different thing. Because <laughs> if the thing that was the different thing was that thing, it would be something different, mm-hmm. right? So, no, that doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. Also, I do love that uh, everyone's very bullish on waging the drug war uh, against one person. Because you know what? I'll tell a, a lot of Republicans probably could sympathize with somebody who goes to the airport and ends up being arrested because they left a gun in their bag. This happens all the time, by the way. It's shocking how often this happens. Famous people, politicians, it's always happened. People have a gun in there. And you sometimes forget it. That, if it's in a locker, I imagine somebody probably had it in a bag, in their bag of stuff, maybe didn't realize it was in there, probably weren't doing bumps in the White House, um, and dropped it. Uh, that can happen. And if it did happen and it was some visitor, like, I just don't know that I want to spend a lot of time and resources of finding out somebody who did cocaine. So what? I don't, I know. They're like, well, it's maybe Hunter. Does Hunter use the lockers down there? Probably not. No. And I think it was like Ted Cruz who said, we know, I think they didn't come out and say, well, it's that, probably not Hunter. I think he said that he it was pretty sure that it wasn't Hunter. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if it was, you know, what does that get who cares? us? Yeah. I, I just like the guy's back on drugs. Okay. I mean, the only thing I care about is if he's back in Beijing doing, you know, billion dollar deals on his father's name. Right. And that is, you, is helping. That, that, yeah. That's worth looking into. That's worth Can you looking. walk us through what, what the amount of cocaine means there, Moynihan? A just gram? Like, a gra- less yeah. than a gram? Yeah. What's, what does that mean? That, for would the last, arts? that would last me, hypothetically. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, not long. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a lot. It's not a lot of cocaine. I, I, I haven't done that in a long time. Uh, but uh, done that, you, that small amount of cocaine in a long yeah, time. It's, yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, I usually do it in, for journalistic in, reasons. Yeah, obviously. yeah. That's yeah. that's. Um, I typically it is. Um, uh, I do it in a way that that uh, you'd see in Scarface. Yeah, you know, just a huge 
Bayern is a cocaine. <laughs> in a bad Al Pacino Cuban accent. You know, I do it. It's like, by the end of that movie, that, that word is collapsed into just like one syllable. So like, what are you doing, cocaine? They're like, what? Is he saying cocaine at this point? What is this? Michelle Pfeiffer? Is she, what's, is she saying cocaine? Yeah, I, that's not a, a gram is a bag, it's a very, very small bag. Is that was what the, the denomination that somebody buys when they're going out uh, and they like bring it to the It's just, a, it's not a ton of cocaine. It's not as if somebody found an enormous parcel uh, of stuff that you could cut up and sell to people or something. No, it's just a, obviously a recreational amount. That's all I'd say. Yeah. And I, that's not any recent experience. That's things in the past. Yeah. I've grown as a person. If if you visit the White House on a tour and you just kind of forget your gram or less mm -hmm. than a gram of cocaine in the White House locker, mm -hmm. are you like, oh my god, I can't believe it? Are you like, ah, no, 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 ah. no, no, and unless like unless you're Hunter, who as we found out on <laughs> Megyn Kelly's show, who played us the clip, couldn't that he believe was like, that. That he was, was like, incredible. I, I smoked that. more bits of Parmesan cheese. It's like, <laughs> oh, you're Jonesing. <laughs> He's there's television interviews, and this is kind of weird that. I, I hadn't seen it before, mm -hmm. like a normal soft focus sitting in the chair across the carpet. And he's talking about like how he was on his hands and knees, anything sort of whitish yellow in the carpet. He yeah, was looking gonna be for looking for crack rocks that he might have dropped. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. nuts. Like he shouldn't have ever given didn't that interview. Drop any of them. The hookers <laughs> smoked them when you were passed out. <laughs> but did you did you notice when he was telling the story? He closed his eyes. Yeah, he's like thinking, he's thinking about how glorious <laughs> it was. He's like, oh my God. Remembering smoking <laughs> crack and what it, how great it was. crack. And how the he's going to do it as soon as the interview was over. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as this is done. By the, by the way, drug experience as a journalist can be helpful. Because if you were, a, if you were <laughs> an interviewer there, I'd be like, okay, you have a Porsche. You have enormous amounts of uh, money from very dodgy places. We'll get to that. Um, how does somebody with this money get to crack? Because cocaine yeah. is is lasts longer. It feels better. It's you have it, the reason you smoke crack is you don't have a lot of money. What got you there? Because that <laughs> has to be a decision. I am going towards crack. I mean, and it, de it definitely wasn't because you were short on money. Yeah, that's the question a, that needs to be asked and, and was not asked and to my to my knowledge has not been asked. But that's what yeah. we need to know. Why not Coke? Isn't there like a, a quicker hitting vibe to it? Smoking crack than than snorting cocaine? One it's hand? a it's a different feeling, for sure. Um and you've heard reportorially. I've, I've I mean, I used to be friends <laughs> with Marion Barry. Um, <laughs> Gary Webb and I used to go over to his house. May of life. <laughs> and, he, and he was, <laughs> he was like, he's like, bitch, you set me up with good crack. And I was like, yes, that's the bitch set me up that I wanted. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's different, but it's not, it's not it's shorter. You know, it comes in and out and it's like, and also crack is like, it's not just, it's not free based cocaine. It's cooked with garbage. Mm -hmm. uh, which is what makes it. Um, yeah. It's a trash drug. It's yeah. a trash drug. Yeah. It's not like, I mean, freebasing was what Richard Pryor used to do. Right. So people in the eight, like rich people in the eighties were like a smoke cocaine cause it got straight in your lungs, straight in your system. And it was expensive cause you're just burning a lot of cocaine in like one go. Um, and 
yeah, that kind of went away, that thing, and was replaced by crack. But not because crack was better. Um, just because it's cheaper and, and easier to manufacture. A little bit of cocaine makes a lot of crack. That's the thing. So, yeah. And I've never made it, just so, for the record. I want to be very <laughs> no. clear about that. I've never made crack cocaine. But uh, I've seen documentaries about it for sure. Yeah. That's the other I, qualification he'd offer people. Yeah. yeah. That he's never I, made it. <laughs> That's it. I did buy one. Nor, $100. by the way, have I ever smoked it, just to be clear. <laughs> I, I, I want to be clear about that. I have seen people smoke it, though. I'm not joking. I've never smoked crack sure. cocaine, but I have yeah. seen people smoke it. Which, I've seen but, people smoke it as well on the streets of San Francisco. No, I was in a house with people, which, and by the way, it su really surprised me. Mm. And the person who was did have money, and the answer to that question was he was funnily enough he was a cuban guy um he was just like had been a heroin addict he was just somebody who was constantly looking for like cheap hits and lots of them and um you could do that by like hanging out like trap houses and which he did and this is in mm. boston and um it was the one time that i was ever around anyone smoking crack and i got out of there very very quickly i thought you were going to uh, tell the story about rob ford for a minute there but oh yeah. no yeah that's that's yeah Oh. That's don't crack his whack because you're 700 pounds and your heart will explode. <laughs> That's the Rob Ford story. So. <laughs> I did buy $100 worth of crack one night. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. In 1987 or eight or something like that. What did um, you do with it, Matt Welch? I didn't do anything with it. The guy that I bought it for uh, who wanted like was hanging out. You, you ever like hang out in the college town during the summer? There's some bad people who like come around the college town in the summer because the, the the college town, you know, people go home. They do their things that when they're successful people um, and the ones who stay are like, cool, rents are now one third of what they normally are. Um, and like the weird dudes hang out in their stoop or whatever um, in the evening. And I got to talking to this one guy who didn't seem to be a college student. Um, but what he was doing, he's like, oh, I'm a crack dealer. <laughs> and I was a journalist at the time. Uh, I'm like, what are, what are you even talking about? And uh, and he like got me on his thing of like, uh, you want to see what I'm talking about? Um, you know, uh, I could use $100 to buy some crack for a person over here. And uh, I was like curious to, to watch it happen. So I um, uh, went to... An ATM pretended it didn't work and wrote a check that I bounced later um, to a guy to uh, and it was like a terrifying situation. Just a couple of doors down from me, an apartment complex in Isla Vista. Suddenly, a lot of people with a lot of guns were like sketchily smoking crack at six o'clock in the morning. Um, and I was like, cool. I don't ever want to be around crack or anything like that again for the rest six of my life. Six in the morning. Yep. That's what time you smoke a lot of crack. Do you remember the... Um a uh, very famous George H.W. Bush speech in 1989 where he held up the crack cocaine and said that oh. we bought this in Lafayette Park, which is the park right across from the street. Uh, oh, yeah. Pennsylvania. And then it was later revealed by Michael Isikoff, um, who was then at the Washington Post, that they wrote the speech and then contacted the DEA, who then lured a crack deal to Lafayette Park. Uh, with a DEA, <laughs> DEA agent and bought uh, like a couple thousand dollars worth of crack. Wow. And like Isakoff revealed that was that, that like they set up this, 
this bust for so he could have a bag of crack for his speech that he got at uh, Lafayette. Well, he, he didn't get it at Lafayette Park. <laughs> It'd be great if George Bush was out there. Yeah, I need some crack. <laughs> That's not the real gonna smoke it. <laughs> bitch set me up. Uh, yeah, situation. Yeah, yeah, that was Ultimately. that was. Uh, I, I hope that crack dealer got out. Because uh, that's that's a funny one. So, anyways, um, yeah. all right, we've been doing this for a while, and yes, this has been an, this is an hour and fifty four minutes in. Um, this has been a um, a very special episode of the Fifth yeah. Column, a summer episode mm. in which Camille comes uh, halfway through eating Thai food. Um, <laughs> the woman seemed. walked into his room, who I don't think has left. Um, <laughs> I just heard somebody say in Spanish, "I want my money," and he's, <laughs> he's going through his wallet as I'm looking him on the video. Be yeah, quiet. baby, baby, baby. Yeah, the Hunter Biden of the fifth column, um, <laughs> smoking bits of cheese on the floor, just taking um, that slide down in the pool. Yeah. So, I mean, I just want you guys to know and appreciate the fact that. When we're all over the country or doing all sorts of things in the summer, uh, Camille working in California, staying in hotels, me on jury duty, like the loser <laughs> that I am, didn't get out of that. And uh, Matt, I don't know, doing his blind melon impression with that fucking Just thing on his head. the worst fucking headband. Yeah, it's a terrible <laughs> it's headband. Terrible. We still do a podcast. Uh, we still do it. the fact that and we didn't even talk about boring NATO summits or things like that. We talked yeah. about other weird things. Um, like I, did, I did want to talk about that. We we talk about it later, though. Talk about it. Later. I, I that, imagine that's that not conflict going away. will still be going on. It it yeah. unfortunately will be, and the people who produce really dumb commentary about it because they heard about Ukraine and NATO last year, they heard about NATO enlargement last year, and have become experts on it. Um, somebody I saw the other day who was, didn't realize, I don't think that the Baltic states were admitted into NATO. Um, not in 1991, and uh, that was uh, pretty pretty funny to watch. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so they, we've been bringing it closer to Russia's door for a long time. So anyway, that was a, a, a fun episode, and um, I'm sorry if you got lost in the weeds with us, but uh, we'll be back doing uh, probably a more a more structured episode soon. Yes, soon. Although maybe soon. not, maybe not next week though, because we got something else happening next week, right? We do. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, we do next week. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we do. Um, which we should talk about, but um, yeah. we will be dropping that. I hope on the feed too. No, we will. Yeah. We will. We yeah. are recording. Yes, yeah, yeah. we're recording a live episode somewhere. Um, without Matt, uh, just Camille and I. So um, it and a special uh, special guest. Special guest, and it's not open yeah. to the public, so don't even fucking dare email me. <laughs> It's at a. It's for Bank of America. It's a, cor, it's a corporate gig. It's a private event. Yeah. Private event. All right. All right. Bye. Bye. We, we, we know of new methods of attack.